The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Maya Nicholson, Internet Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 10th, 2024. Earlier this week, the D.C. Circuit ruled that former President Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution in the government's case against him for his role in the January 6th attack. Trump had previously moved to dismiss his indictment and asserted executive immunity from prosecution. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from April 13th, 2019, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Julian Mortensen, author of Article 2 vs. Executive Power, Not the Royal Prerogative. They discussed the history of the words, the executive power, in the U.S. Constitution, why Mortensen believes the conventional understanding of the words are wrong, and more. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 16th, 2019. Julian Mortensen is a professor of law at the University of Michigan. He is also the author of a remarkable new article entitled Article 2 Vests Executive Power, Not the Royal Prerogative. The article is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review and is available online at the SSRN website. I don't usually talk about law review articles on the Lawfare podcast, but I'm making an exception this time because I found this article completely fascinating. Julian has been working on it for years, literally as long as I've known him, and it is about the history of exactly three words in the Constitution. To be precise, it's about the first three words of Article 2, the executive power. On a conventional understanding of these three words has rested huge claims about presidential power. Julian argues in this article that this conventional understanding is wrong. Not a little bit wrong. Not mostly wrong. But completely wrong as a matter of history. And he tries to supplant it with a new understanding that he argues is actually a very old understanding of what those words mean. It's a fascinating discussion. It's one I think you will want to stick with to the end. It delivers a bit of a punch. And it's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 408, Julian Mortensen on the executive power. I want to start with a question about the history of this project. You've been working on the researching the history of the Constitution's vesting clause 
for about as long as I've known you, I think, which is, you know, not a short time at this point. So how long have you been working on this project and how did you get interested in it? I think that's right. And it's interesting to reflect on the paths that the research arc itself has taken. I always feel about this particular project, and maybe this is just the norm as you move forward in academia, like I didn't really go looking for it. Like it found me in some sense. I was asked to write a review, which you and I have discussed along the way, of sort of the accumulated works of um, John Yu in the context of his work for and the positions of, especially the first term um, George W. Bush administration. And in the course of doing that work, I think the question that I found hardest when I stepped back and tried to put together the pieces that I was thinking through historically was if, in essence, there wasn't a historical basis for the strong claim by the Bush administration that there are lots of circumstances where if a foreign affairs question or a national security question is sufficiently important, the president can simply ignore a statute. If there's not evidence for that, then what do we do about the problem of unanticipated events and unanticipated circumstances and gaps in the statutes and sort of very broadly speaking, the emergency powers problem. And I sort of, this is now, as you said, a long time ago, um, but I ended that piece with sort of a, a grace note observation about that being a challenging implication of the historical research, if you took the history seriously, is, is how to handle real emergency. So the next step was to try to engage with that question. And I mean, as you know, there's a there's a tradition, and it's really more of a political theory tradition than a legal tradition per se, of what's called the prerogative. And people will talk about it as the Lockean prerogative or the Jeffersonian prerogative or the Lincolnian prerogative, which basically amounts to a non-law-grounded right, if that's even the right term, by the president to simply ignore the law in sufficiently dire circumstances. And what that the, the direness varies depending on the theorist's perspective. But I then turned to a project that explored that. And it really wasn't a project about law. It was a project of a way of exploring a way of talking about law-breaking. And now, in this roundabout way, I'm coming to why this project launched. And that's because the political theory phrase, prerogative, is the same word, literally the same word, as a long-standing and still regularly used British legal term, which is to say crown prerogative. And that is essentially a basket of powers that the crown holds, largely but not only um, in the foreign affairs and national security realm, and um, which is deployed with as much, you know, un, un self conscious, everybody understands what this means kind of diction as words like negligence um, are, right? It's sort of just an absolutely standard legal phrase. And, and, and here's the thing when I started to encounter those sort of, encounter those sort of false hits, for the purpose of the political theory project, it was really, really hard to miss the fact that the way they were talking about this crown prerogative was like exactly the way that what I'm calling now residuum theorists talk about the Constitution's vesting of the executive power. That is to say, is a basket of authorities that the chief magistrate ought to have because they're really useful in running a country and especially with respect to foreign affairs and national security powers. So when did you discover that coincidence of meaning and decide to 
spend time researching the meaning of the phrase, the executive power in the Constitution? How long ago was that? I would say seven years ago, and it emerged, I think I'm counting right, because I know it's less than a decade and a good bit more than five years. It emerged alongside this political theory project, and it wasn't obscure sources, which at the beginning made me constantly think, I must be missing something here. I must be missing something here. Um, right? It's Blackstone and Locke and kind of a, a major 18th century politicians, major 18th century legal treatise writers using this word prerogative to refer to the basket of powers. And I wouldn't say occupied all of my time in the first couple of years of that cycle, but it occupied increasing amounts of time. Okay. So you have spent, I just want to pinpoint this, you have spent seven years studying the question of the meaning of three words in the Constitution. Is that right? I mean, that's right, right? I mean, I've done other things too, but yes, that's right. I've spent seven years on this project. It's dominated everything else I've done. That's and right. this this article, which is now out on SSRN and is scheduled for publication, is the result of seven years of research on the meaning of the phrase, the executive power in the Constitution. Yes. I mean, this is not a narrow topic, and we'll discuss why, but in some ways it's even more narrow than that, because this article was supposed to be part one of a single article taking into account all possible sources of meaning for talking about what the vesting clause of the U.S. Constitution included. And so I don't know sure that I can prorate the amount of work over that period of time focusing only on this basket of political theory, legal treatise, politician sources before you get to the founding, but it was going to be part one of a single article and And you and you've lopped it off after seven years as its own thing. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I don't mean to make fun of you about the eccentricity of that, because I actually the reason we're having this conversation is that I think this is a super important and super interesting article. But I did want to start with that because this subject, which seems both very old in the sense that this is an article about 18th century lexical meaning and also seems incredibly narrow, right? It's, it's a, an article about three words actually is critically important in this subject, is critically important in the entire debate that we have over presidential power and separation of powers. And so I want, like, just as simply as you can, explain to me why people care about this question and what actually turns on this question, why people should care. Great. Well, I can't Stop myself from starting with, I'm not sure if it's technically a meta comment, but a comment one step away from the substance of the thing, which is people care about history for different reasons. And I suspect that you're not particularly interested in rehashing conversations about the legitimacy of originalism and so forth. But it's worth noting that the more committed you are to being constrained by the decisions of the drafters of text, the larger, or I guess the more, um, forceful the consequences of this research are. That's not the only reason to care. There's also a rhetoric of constitutional legitimation. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of David Posen, among others, has done really interesting work on this 
score, trying to reduce some of these intuitive observations to empirical assessment, where if you're invoking constitutional history and original meaning, that has a particular normative oomph today. So maybe we just bracket the question of whether history should matter, except that it does matter, and talk about why this answer changes things. Does that sound fair? Well, but I, but I want to, I, I mean, I, I actually think if I can put words in your mouth, that there's a particular reason that this research very deeply matters, almost irrespective of your view of history, which is that, in fact, presidents have claimed, including in the example that you started with, which is the early Bush administration, presidents have claimed the authority to disregard acts of Congress that impede what they consider the executive power, which a lot of theoreticians equate with the prerogative power, and they assert the authority based on a certain historical understanding of these three words. They assert the authority to do that unless there's some specific constitutional language that takes it away from them. And you are saying as an original matter, as a historical matter, they are wrong. I literally couldn't put it better than that. And I can go on to explain why in the text of the constitutional language, this dominant reading of the executive power clause as being something like the royal prerogative is so significant. Well, let's start by saying, all right, this is an argument about a specific clause of the Constitution. And what I think we've just agreed on is that a whole lot turns on it, right? Can the president ignore a torture statute if it gets in the way of his ability to interrogate people after 9-11, right? What are some other thing, examples that, that turn on this question? Well, one of the places that it has come up most expressly in the Supreme Court was a case where the Obama administration didn't want to essentially be compelled to do something that looked like entering into the Israel recognition issue by a statute that required printing passports certain ways. There's a claim in that case that this line of logic leads the president to be able to simply ignore what Congress requires. Um, and so we see this argument surfacing in, I mean, frankly, more important issues with respect to things like wiretapping. There's a very particular set of modalities created um, for when foreign affairs, national security wiretapping can take place. The president and his advisors in good faith, let's say, believe that those restrictions are too restraining. And they therefore claim, among other things, that this constitutionalized power to protect the nation, among many other things, simply can't be taken away by a wiretapping restriction, can't be taken away by a war powers resolution restriction on the use of hostilities, can't be taken away by you know statutes instantiating war crimes, international war crimes, prohibitions as a matter of domestic constitutional law. And so across a range of really significant controversies, this tool is available to administrations that have used it with varying degrees of force, to be sure, as a way of saying, we don't have to do what Congress says we have to do, 
or we get to do the thing that Congress told us we can't do. Right. So in other words, if I can once again put words in your mouth, this is the tectonic plates of a great deal of the controversy we have had over executive versus legislative authority over the last 15, 18 years. I think that's exactly right. It's the San Andreas fault, right? Before, before we get to characterizing the nature of the tectonic arrangements, this is what lies beneath the warrantless wiretapping dispute, the interrogation debates, the Israel recognition. The list of things you just identified is really like that's the front page of the newspaper over a lot of years. 100 percent. All right. Let's talk about the San Andreas Fault. <laughs> what is the vesting clause? The vesting clause is the first sentence of the second article of the Constitution. Big picture, the Constitution starts with three articles. One, essentially creating and defining the powers of Congress. Two, creating and defining the powers of the office of the president. And three, creating and defining the powers of the jurisdiction of the judiciary. So the very first sentence of the constitutional chapter on the president says, and I may as well quote it, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. All right. This is beautiful. So it's a simple sentence. It's a very elegant sentence. It's a sentence that seems to have pretty obvious meaning. We know what shall be vested in means. We know what the president of the United States means because the rest of the article tells you how he's elected, tells you what oath of office he's going to swear, and actually enumerates a bunch of his powers. And so there's this little phrase up at front of it, the executive power, which sounds big and grand. And tell us historically how it has been understood by a long line of people who have wanted to understand it in a big and grand way. What's the orthodox understanding of the phrase, the executive power? In many ways, it's driven by a fundamental feature of the rest of Article 2, which is that, as you've rightly noted, Article 2 enumerates various authorities of the president, but there just aren't very many of them. <laughs> There's some really important process authorities. It's really spare. Extremely spare. Sparse text, uh, if you – at one point I counted the words up. I don't remember what the result was. But I think it's either most of the words or close to most of the words of Article 2 say nothing about power. They're talking only about the selection process. Right. They spent a lot of time on the electoral college and the mode of selection and then just kind of dashed off. And by the way, he can receive ambassadors and he's commander-in-chief. Exactly. And so when you combine how few – as we say, specific clauses there are in Article 2 of the Constitution, with the very important responsibilities that exist, and forget the president for the moment, that exist with respect to running the country as to foreign affairs, as to national security, as to military affairs, you get what is sometimes described, and I'll drop a footnote to say I think this is overstated, 
but it's sometimes described as a gap, a foreign affairs gap, right? Uh, uh, president can make treaties who gets to terminate them. Congress can declare war. Well, what if not, not all hostilities are war. What about you know bombing Syria in response to human rights violations? Um, how about negotiations over an agreement before you get there? Um, what about removing officers? Right? There's there's a whole range of things that are. I mean, I, there's no way of getting around it. Really important to the running of a country that aren't spoken to by the text of the Constitution, or at least, and I'm going to drop another footnote. I think this is wrong, uh, but that appear not to be provided for by the text of the Constitution. So what's left? And I'll stop the long wind up now, what's left in Article 2 is this reference to the executive power, which if you're looking for a basket to drop some powers in and know nothing else other than the words you're reading on the page, could possibly be read as a basket to drop needful powers in that aren't otherwise specified. And the theory that you attack in this article, which is that that body of residual powers is actually vast and broad and encompasses essentially all of foreign policy and all of national security. It has a long lineage and it has a lot of acceptance. So you mentioned John Yoo at the outset. He's kind of the most famous or infamous exemplar of this thesis. But it's it's much more widely accepted, at least in some form, than John Yoo who accepts this thesis and you know how, how widely accepted is it? There are serious historians who have challenged it. Chief among them leaping to my mind are Martin Flaherty and Kurt Bradley. With that said, I don't think it's anything close to an overstatement to say that it dominates among ideological conservatives and the standard ideological liberal response to the claim has not been, again, with the exception to a substantial extent of, of work by Bradley and Flaherty, has not been to contest the historical proposition, but rather to argue that well, actually the historical evidence is complicated because history is always hard, one, and two, to say, and in any event, should we really be guided or bound by what people who've been dead for 200 years think. So I think it's fair to say that it has been asserted by prominent politicians, including uh, presidents, and it has been defended by a whole array of legal scholars, typically originalist in orientation, and the dissenters mostly focus on references to history being indeterminate, and on sort of functional concerns or legitimacy concerns about history being determinative. And you think it's wrong? Yes, I think it's wrong. I think it's, I think it's definitely wrong. And to me, the biggest puzzle now, and I don't have an answer for you yet because it's an obvious question to ask, is how it emerged. I mean, Hamilton clearly plays a role, but it is so at odds with literally everything I've seen in a close review of way more material than is in this paper that I'm left baffled as to how it emerged. And I think that story will likely be an interesting story in its own right, although I'm not in a position to tell it yet. So you, on a scale, there's a lot of ways to be for a theory to be wrong in the world and for a big theory to be wrong. You know, like there's, you know, a little bit wrong all the way on the scale to total bullshit wrong. Where does this fall? It's about as wrong as it could be. I will avoid the the particulars of your characterization, but I, I I think it is I am subjectively left with no doubt about this. Which of course, that in twenty five cents will get you a cup of coffee. But if you ask me how certain I am that 
the vesting clause thesis that we've been describing is wrong, I am completely confident that it's wrong. And this is the first step in showing that or trying to show that, I should say. So just to bring the listener along with us, what we have now asserted or what you have now asserted is that a orthodox understanding, historical understanding of the meaning of a critical phrase of the Constitution that underlies a huge amount of separation of powers news over the last 15 years and basically a lot of national security and foreign affairs confrontations between the executive and legislative branch, that orthodox understanding is about as wrong as it can be historically. Is that fair? Yes. So I want to read you a brief account from page 19 of your article of the research that underlies it. It says this article relies on more than a thousand contemporaneous published texts by hundreds of commentators with a research methodology that involved reviewing every instance of the word root exec and reading most of the texts cover to cover with the topic of presidential power squarely in mind. That immersion in the evidence enables a distinctive feature of this project, the confidence with which this article can not only refute the residuum thesis, but can also offer an affirmative replacement thesis that is both historically and theoretically coherent and that cannot be caricatured as so much carping about a thicket of contestation and uncertainty. So what you're trying to do here, as I read the article, is sweep off the table basically a lot of years of a lot of people's understanding of the executive power and replace it with your own. Is that is that fair? Yes. All right. So let's talk about the thesis you're sweeping off of the table and then talk about what you're replacing it with. What is the traditional vesting clause thesis? I mean, you've already sort of stated it a little bit, but what what is the what is the thesis that you're arguing with here? The traditional thesis describes or understands the reference to executive power as being a reference to to restate it powers typically held by an executive. So the work that the adjective executive is doing there is a sort of metonymy, right? Those political organs known as executives do lots of things. All of the things that an executive does is therefore part of the executive power. And the principal referent for this is the king. Because of Anglo-American legal tradition, that was the dominant place to look, at least the traditional thesis goes, when you're trying to ask what powers are naturally or essentially or traditionally associated with that person who holds the chief magistracy of, of a sovereign state. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In other words, in the traditional view, anything that the king was allowed to do in the foreign policy space or the national security space that the constitution doesn't prevent the president from doing, the president inherits. Correct. And I think an important component of that is that the president inherits that and Congress cannot take it away from him, right? I think that's the logical implication. And I think that has been the perspective typically advanced by many vesting clause theorists. There are some, and some important ones, who suggest that the grant of the executive power is more provisional than we've described so far, a sort of a default state of affairs with respect to this one single power of the president, where if Congress decides along the way that it wants to stop the president from doing something related to foreign affairs, it can do that. But until such time as Congress chooses to reallocate or to intervene or to change what the rules are, the president is entitled, again, as other, except as otherwise prohibited by the Constitution, the president is entitled, roughly speaking, to do what the king could do. And, and that's a really sharp divergence in... I would say a debate within the uh, the school or the camp that adopts the thesis that I'm contesting. Some think we wouldn't imagine that Congress could take away the veto of the president. We wouldn't think that Congress could take away the commander in chief power. How in the world could Congress possibly take away, absent a really good argument about overlapping authorities, how in the world could Congress possibly take away the president's executive power? I actually think that's the most, I mean, by, by, by a good measure, the most logical implication of the thesis. But I think, to some extent, uncomfortable with the implications in, in a good faith way, and not only in terms of today, but in terms of how that is so at odds with a lot of what we know about the founding. There's also some very thoughtful writers in this school who say, well, actually, this particular clause, the executive power clause, is the, and I think it's fair to say, unique example of a presidential power that Congress can actually take away in part or actually even in whole. So if I can summarize two distinct versions of this thesis, one is the president got all the residual powers of the king to the extent the Constitution didn't take them away and give them to somebody else or preclude them altogether, and Congress can't touch those powers. That's the sort of John Yu torture memo thesis, right? And then exactly on the other hand, you have the softer version. The president got all those powers. But if Congress wants to regulate them or limit them uh, as long as it's acting within its own constitutional powers, it gets to do that. Yes, exactly. But you think these theses are both equally wrong yes. be because the whole premise is wrong. Right, 
it doesn't even get off the ground to asking whether Congress could take away the powers that are included with respect to foreign affairs, etc., because there are no such. The Lawfare Podcast has a sponsor. It's Blinkist. Has your to-read list been piling up? Do you think you don't have time to read or develop yourself? Are you overwhelmed by all the available content and not even sure what to add to that growing to-read list? The Blinkist app helps solve these problems. It's the only app that distills the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books so that you can absorb those ideas in text or audio format in 15-minute segments. Blinkist is for busy people who want to understand the central arguments of books efficiently without necessarily reading the whole thing. It's for people who want help finding books they'd want to spend time with and books they'd rather just digest the major point of and move on. Eight million users on Blinkist take advantage of the app's massive and always growing library that includes many nonfiction topics politics, psychology, leadership, and history. With its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish highlights from as many as four books a day, and it's got a lot of titles that listeners of the Lawfare podcast will find interesting. For example, I'm traveling quite a bit this week, but I nonetheless had time to read highlights from Secondhand Time, an oral history of the Soviet Union and its demise by Nobel Prize-winning author Svetlana Alexevich. I also listened to the Blinkist audio for Yuval Noah Harari's Homo Deus. I'm still learning the ropes of Blinkist, but if you're looking to learn a little something or figure out what books you want to spend more time with, and you want to do this while commuting, traveling, flying back and forth to California, taking a nice walk with a dog or a jog, I'd recommend it. So, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for listeners of the Lawfare podcast. Go to Blinkist.com slash Lawfare to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash Lawfare to start your free seven-day trial. Again, Blinkist.com slash Lawfare. All right, so let's talk about, like, we've just spent, you know, half an hour talking about what the executive power does not mean. Let's talk about the world according to Julian Mortensen. What does the words, the three words, seven years you've been spending it on this, what, what do the words the executive power in the Constitution mean? Pardon me while I take a break to question my priorities. Um, <laughs> no, I know, I, I know you're not saying that, or at least I hope you're not. No, um, I'm not. In the same way as there is a rough semantic logic to saying one way to read the executive power is the powers held by an executive, there is, and at least on my first reading, an even more plausible semantic logic that says the executive power is the power to execute. The executive power is the power in a governance context to execute the laws and projects of an exercise of the legislative power. So there is nothing to the executive power other than the authority to do that which is instructed or authorized by a prior moment of legislation, speaking roughly. All right. Let's unpack that because I think the careless listener is going to think you just said that the executive power is the power to execute laws, which sounds so obvious that it's 
if that were all you were saying, would be like a bad punchline. But I think what you're what you're saying there is that the executive power is a power that, unlike the prerogative power, is not inherited from some prior body of executives. It's entirely derivative of other constitutional or other legislative power. Is that fair? Absolutely right. And it is, I'm coming around to the view that far from being an afterthought, it may have been the single most important clause in the Constitution. And we can talk about the historical background that fleshes that claim out a bit. And of course, everybody thinks what they work on is the most important thing. But but, but this is no um, mealy-mouthed power. It is utterly central to how 18th century lawyers, 18th century political philosophers, and most relevantly, the founding generation, both experts and non-experts, talked about what it was to govern. First you formulate an idea, then you do the idea. And there is a maybe deceptive, maybe just not that deceptive, simplicity to the sequential, or as you put it, derivative relationship between legislating and executing. But that it is simple, I think, should not um, confuse the listener, as you rightly point out, into thinking that it doesn't sound like a very big deal. In constitutional context, it was a very big deal. All right. So I want to flesh out why it's a big deal here. First, and first, let's start by like distinguishing between, you, you alluded to this before, between the executive power and the prerogative power. In the conventional vesting clause thesis, the understanding is that the executive power embeds the prerogative power, right? If the king has the power to uh, round people up, then the president has the power to round people up except as limited by habeas corpus, right? And later the Fifth Amendment. But your argument is that these are separate. So walk us through the separation what is the part of the prerogative power that is part of the executive power, and what's the part of the prerogative power that's not? One way to think about how they talked about this would be, and of course you and I can't do this right now, but just to open probably the era's most famous treatise, certainly one of the two or three most famous on, on law, and specifically on the constitutional law of England in its first volume, Blackstone. What it meant to use the phrase prerogative was nothing more conceptually complicated than to refer to a list of stuff the king or the crown could do. And it is a long, lengthy list, including some really important authorities, like, for example, the power to be commander-in-chief, the power to make appointments, the power to make treaties, and some ones that don't map onto our understanding of governance at all, the power to be the, or the authority, I should say, the, the entitlement to be the head of the church. And then some frankly goofy ones. I mean, symbolically, they make sense, but it's hard for me to keep a straight face as I describe the king's prerogative entitlement to all sturgeon and whales that wash up on the coasts of the island, the Emerald Isle, uh, because they are royal beasts. And, you know, from the profound and really important down to the less profound, let's say. It's literally a list of stuff, and it doesn't vary that much from one commentator to the next. And to close the loop on your question, references to the executive power, and this, this isn't a close call, it's like right there on the face of these lists. The executive power is one of these powers. 
It is a subset of prerogative, and it is described sometimes as sort of the jewel of the king's authority. It is the king's. It is the essence of the king's identity to be the the life of the law, to be the uh, his 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 justices or the mouths that that speaks the law, and his uh, his arm is the executive authority that enforces the law. And so, to step way back and summarize, and then I'll stop. It's a big long list of stuff he can do. It includes a lot of the stuff the president can do. And as one of those things, it includes as a subset of authority, the executive power, which is the power to do those things that parliament told him to do. All right. So this is great because this actually really disaggregates these in an elegant way. The prerogative power, long list of stuff the king gets to do. He gets to be the head of the church. He gets all the whales and sturgeon that wash up. And he gets to have the executive power. The president only gets the executive power, and it is limited to the power to execute the laws that other entities have passed. I think that's right. He doesn't get any whales. <laughs> I think the answer is no. Um, I, I might even I might even um, make the point. I'm not sure if it's more forcefully or not, but just extend the point. The president unequivocally gets more of the prerogative than just the executive power. The executive power is one of the prerogatives or one element of prerogative, one element of prerogative that he gets. He gets other ones. He's the commander-in-chief. He can make appointments. He can make treaties, right? It's, it's not quite like they ran down the list of Blackstone in order and circled some and X'd out others. But, but the effect is not and it would be overstating my thesis to say the president gets no other powers of prerogative. That's not true. The president does get other powers of prerogative, but only, like the executive power, where they're expressly enumerated in the text of the Constitution. So in other words, you are actually turning the presumptions of the traditional vesting clause thesis on its head. The traditional thesis says the president gets all the powers of the king unless they are specifically taken away from him in the Constitution. And you're saying the president gets none of the powers of the king unless they are specifically given to him by the Constitution. Exactly. All right. So let's talk about the real-world implications of this with reference to some issues that are on the table right now. The president keeps talking about withdrawing from NATO. The Constitution gives the power, president the power to make treaties, but as you pointed out, does not give him explicitly the power to withdraw from treaties. Congress, in the traditional vesting clause, understanding could probably not take that power away from him, couldn't say to him, Mr. President, you cannot withdraw from NAFTA or NATO or the Korean-American Free Trade Agreement. But as I understand the Julian Mortensen vesting clause, Congress, assuming it could pass over his veto, a law that says the president may not withdraw from NATO, could prevent the president from withdrawing from NATO. That's exactly right. No question in your mind that Congress can say the president, notwithstanding the commander-in-chief power, cannot authorize the torture of a detainee cannot override the torture statute to authorize uh, behavior that it would forbid. If this account is right, that's not even a close call. No, the, 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 the authorities simply cannot provide the basis to 
ignore a statutory ban on torture. No. How about ambassadors? The the Constitution gives the president the right to the authority to receive ambassadors and ministers. It does not give him explicitly the authority to expel them, though we've always thought of that as an inherent presidential authority. Is it an inherent presidential authority or is it just that Congress has never bothered to say, no, you can't throw out the British ambassador because we actually have a special relationship and we like the British and we like the Germans, even though you don't like Angela Merkel, Mr. President? (laughs) I'm going to give the worst law professor answer of all time, which is that it depends. And it even depends for me because I'm not – I'm quite sure I don't have a fully fleshed out view on – the historical understanding of the of the receive ambassadors clause, and, and here's why I'm hedging. There's layers here, right? I'm confident about the historical claim of this clause. I am much less committed to the mechanically textualist view, either on uh, the grounds of original understanding or as like how it makes sense to interpret a constitution today. I, I'm much less committed to the rigidly textualist review uh, view that, for example. Because the Constitution refers to receiving ambassadors, but doesn't use the word expelling, it's inconceivable that in some sort of penumbral sense, the receive ambassadors power would authorize expulsion as well, and maybe even indefeasibly so. If I have the power to receive you on the Lawfare podcast, I presumably have the power to, <laughs> just within the four corners of that power, to kick you off the Lawfare podcast. That seems facially plausible. Um, it seems 100% plausible here, <laughs> but it's facially plausible, right? That's not a question of prerogative power versus executive power. That's simply an interpretive exercise with respect to the boundaries of the the power to receive ambassadors. Exactly. And there will be hard questions around that. Not so many, because as I said, there aren't so many other powers. But where you have a textually expressed power that's in the neighborhood of something the president wants to do, I mean, you're going to need to have some careful thinking about, as you put it, the boundaries of what that express power is. That's not a question of the vesting clause. That's a question of the receive ambassadors clause or the the make treaties clause and so forth. So finally, one of the other elements of the the vesting clause is that it, you know, routinely – influences statutory interpretation. And actually, presidents are really aggressive about insisting that it should, right? You know, if like the signing statements issue where presidents sign a law and say, I'll interpret this in a fashion consistent with the president's, you know, authority to the vesting of the executive power in the president and his authority to do X, Y, and Z. And the result of that is often to sort of neuter the the substance of, of the congressional enactment. So if we adopt a Mortensonian understanding of the vesting clause, how does it affect statutory interpretation? There's an easy answer and there's a remaining harder question. The easy answer is that it wipes off the table completely any claim that, for example, you should construe the war powers resolution narrowly or the you know the restrictions on torture, um, or the the restrictions on on that have existed. Well, still do, still do exist on wiretapping. It wipes off the table the view that that language of those statutes and how we read what Congress was prohibiting and requiring should be construed narrowly, because otherwise it would be unconstitutional vis-a-vis the executive power clause or the vesting clause. It 
takes that argument away entirely. You can't say the canon of constitutional avoidance, which is to say the, the need to interpret statutes so as not to violate the Constitution or come close to doing so. The canon of constitutional uh, avoidance requires us to adopt the, 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 the more generous reading of this statute that facilitates rather than interferes with the president's executive power. That's gone. I'm certainly not going to claim I mean, because I don't need to, that there won't still be all kinds of presumptions that cut in the president's favor when it comes to interpreting those kinds of statutes, and perhaps quite appropriately, right? It seems entirely plausible that you would end up with a commonsensical legislative expectation that you'd want to let the president have some zone of discretion, if there's really a zone of discretion in some textual language. But that wouldn't be a constitutional claim, and, and Congress could alter it by being specific enough. So how has this been received? I mean, a lot of your colleagues in the academy are prominent theoreticians of, of this thesis that you purport to sweep off the table and replace with something, an emperor that has some clothes, not to mention some prerogative. And I, I'm just curious, how has the paper been received and what, what pushback are you getting or, or have lots of people come to you and said, my God, you're right. I would characterize all the feedback I've gotten so far as being in that last category, including offline from, and again, the axes of identity and preference are so complicated, it's just completely wrong to talk about conservatives versus liberals, but stipulating that, including from people who, as I think about where they stand, are squarely in the, quote, conservative originalist camp, some of whom have previously either adopted or certainly um, been open to embracing the vesting clause thesis. I haven't yet heard back in any detail from some folks I'm really eager to hear more from who've worked in this extensively and will see problems maybe that I'm not seeing, and maybe we'll look at all these questions with eyes that are, are missing some bias that I have. So I, I can't claim that everybody said that this is right. But so far, the gist of the resistance that I've encountered, and it's a really important caveat to all this, is that this article doesn't talk – I mean, there's some stray citations – but this article doesn't purport to talk about what the founders actually did. This article makes a claim about the standard, utterly uncontested meaning of a phrase, and it's like deep logic as a matter of 18th century governance theory. It would take an awful big showing to say everything I've just shown, like they just chucked that in 1787. That would be surprising. But it has been rightly pointed out, and I mean, again, like I said, this is part one, or it was supposed to be part one of an article. It has been rightly pointed out that this is the preface or the foundation for a conversation. And I embrace that. That's right. That's my responsibility, is to explain and detail what the founders did, right? What happened when they were drafting the document in Philadelphia? What happened when they argued about it over the course of years during the ratification process? And, and, and also, how did they talk about it once it was part of the Constitution in the early republic? All that stuff is to come. And I have done basically all of the work to state <laughs> with a substantial amount of confidence that um, the materials from the founding – the ratification, the drafting, the framing, they amply and more than amply confirm everything I've said to you. That's a, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm writing a blank check uh, to that effect, um, but I, I feel quite confident that that check is going is to cash and is going to hold up. Finally, one last question. As a judicial matter, the meaning of the vesting clause 
shows up in a variety of cases, including, I suppose, most famously the steel seizure case. But it is not, at least as I understand it, a matter on which the Supreme Court has ever pronounced itself clearly, right? That's exactly right. And it's one reason that in a very bizarre way, this work over the span of some years has had a strange air of urgency, because as you'll recall, when Zivotofsky was being decided, this argument was very much on the table. And so it has been very important um, over a very long period of time that hasn't been so urgent at the end of the day to sort of get this argument out there so that the court doesn't, as a majority, like just get it wrong, because of course precedent is sticky. And we are still in that world, uh, which is to say the world in which there is no Supreme Court majority that has adopted this incorrect view of the vesting clause. Uh, it's still sort of an undecided question as a matter of what the Supreme Court as a whole has said. But that means, just to bring the whole thing around, uh, that means that what you've done here is it's a very rare thing in the legal academy, which is you've taken on the meaning of a critical phrase in the Constitution, which is, while not a matter of first impression before the Supreme Court by any means, an undecided matter as to its meaning in U.S. law, on which a huge amount is at stake, and you have purported to sweep a conventional understanding off the table and replace it with a different one in time for a first adjudication on the merits of the question by the highest court in the land whenever they choose to do that. That strikes me as a remarkably important undertaking, assuming particularly that you're right. That's how I've experienced it. It's been very easy to be highly motivated for this project. It helps that it's intrinsically interesting um, in ways that might be unexpected before you start diving into their debates. But I have experienced this as sort of the most urgent project of my, well, the most urgent scholarly project of my of my professional life. With that, we're going to leave it there. We will look forward to parts two and three of this project and hope you will uh, come back on the podcast when you are done with them, however many years from that oh, that might be. <laughs> I would be delighted. That would be great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't done so already, get on it and take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. Also, you're not wearing enough Lawfare swag, and I want you to fix that. So go to the Lawfare Store, thelawfarestore.com. It's easy to remember. You're not going to forget it. Buy the Lawfare swag and wear it everywhere you go. Also, Go make a contribution to Lawfare on our support page. Make it a monthly contribution. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer this episode was Michaela Fogel, who managed to make Julian sound fabulous by phone from Michigan. Our music, which always sounds fabulous, is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>